right. Thank you, Lauren. We appreciate the opportunity to be able to share about the pro-life ministry and how expansive it really is. And we're excited for what's happening over the Heritage Building as the Birth Choice has now been in operation there, along with a medical facility for those who do not have the kind of uh, maybe insurance or financial support that they need. And one additional thing you're going to be seeing in 2014 is a whole other suite being taken over by an OBGYN uh, team of doctors and nurses to minister to those who need that, coming out of a nonprofit uh, uh, attempt to be able to serve those in our community who have those kinds of needs. So we're grateful for the growing opportunity to minister through those means. This morning we continue in a book called Romans, and it's called Romans because it was written by the Apostle Paul to the Romans who lived in the city of Rome. There you go. I don't want to be too simplistic, but uh, that's why we come up with the names of these books. And uh, I don't want to assume everybody understands that. But each book uh, in the New Testament, the epistles, their letters, Paul wrote that. And when Paul wrote the, the letter to the Romans, it was one really, really, really long letter. And uh, there were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. It was just went on and on and on and on. And uh, they would have sat there and just heard somebody read that to them. And uh, it would be so challenging to absorb it all. And this morning, we have an outline that is available, as we do each morning. And I encourage you to use that to follow along here. And uh, this morning, we want to talk about judgment. I uh, was reading through some uh, news articles and Yahoo News had a story about a woman um, who was a Tennessee mother who made her daughter, Tashara Wilkins, age 13, stand on the side of a street with punishment because uh, she was disobeying her parents. And as she stood, age 13, on the street, she had a sign that she held up, I don't obey my parents, I'm a liar, I steal from my mom, I have a bad attitude. So standing there with that sign displayed for all to see. And then Sherry Wilkins, her mother, was interviewed by the local TV station, uh, WMC-TV in Memphis, and said, All other resources haven't worked, the mom said, so I'm making her be publicly humiliated today. I hope this works for her. I love my child. I could be beating her to death, but I'm not. And so I guess that that's, that's the standard. Anything less than that, you're doing pretty well. Uh, Tashara, the uh, daughter, uh, said this about wearing the sign. She even said, uh, I might even work. She said, I'm, I'm going to start behaving better because I don't want to be standing out here with everybody looking at me like I'm crazy with this sign. And so I don't know who to pick on more, the mom or the daughter, for the behavior that's going on here. I don't know that she would make, you know, parents... Uh, a magazine for the best way to discipline your child, nor would the child, you know, come along and uh, celebrate her mom's uh, on Mother's Day as well. But what I am intrigued about is that we have a hard time balancing judging what is wrong at the same time recognizing that even the daughter said, you know, by wearing the sign out here, I really don't want to disobey mom anymore. So something good comes out of it if it makes the daughter not want to do that. But I'm not sure that's the model of parenthood that we need as well. And the thing that struck me about this particular news article is that sometimes we think of God as this big ogre in heaven who just wants to humiliate and shame and embarrass and judge. 
In fact, we think so strongly that that's the way God is that we think we need to help him do that even better. That is to humiliate and to shame and to judge. And that's why as we finished up last Sunday, and recognizing that each Sunday is really a continuation of the preceding Sunday because there is no break. We just happen to stop at a certain point and pick it up. But as we saw last week, and uh, I addressed the whole topic of homosexuality, but then there's a whole bunch of other sins that God says, I'm not very pleased about either. And so one of the things he says to us, before you judge the homosexual, make sure you're not in this list as well. And that second list includes things like envy, slander, and gossip. They're not high-profile sins. You don't usually, you know, make the police uh, blotter by committing envy, but you do get a notice from God. And so God says, here are the list of things. And then we find people that love to go out there and help God humiliate, shame, and embarrass. And when I see signs like these signs of these people, I'm not sure if they're more interested in sort of a spiritual catharsis to make them feel like they're noble and doing something righteous, or are they really causing someone to convert and be convicted of their sin? I wouldn't be surprised if nobody's in heaven as a result of looking at a sign like that. Would it surprise you if anybody ended up in heaven because they saw, oh, God hates sin. They fall on their face and confess Jesus Christ as Savior. When Jesus Christ was speaking to us and He was on earth, He says, they will know that you are my children. They will know that you are my followers. They will know that you are my believers in Jesus by your love. And I don't feel a whole lot of love coming from these folks. And so to help us to understand that, we're going to go through a series of questions. And I didn't know quite how to handle Romans 2 and 3. It's a lot. We don't have enough time to, to do the depths of every verse. But I put in the outline specific questions that I think that come to my mind, and maybe they come to your mind, And those questions are being answered in Romans 2 and 3. So we're going to read through Romans 2 and 3 and help us, I believe, have a balanced approach and a knowledgeable understanding about God's judgment because we can really get off on that. And it does a lot of damage. When you see signs like this, it does a lot of damage for the cause of Jesus Christ. We want to draw people to the Lord. We don't want to drive them away. Signs like these signs are walls that are built up God says, I want to build bridges so that I can invite them in. Here are some of the questions we're going to look at as we go through the book today. In Romans chapter 2 and 3, first question I think that I want to ask and then answer, why are you and I not to judge other people? And there are some of us in this room that look at signs like that and probably think it's worthwhile. We don't want to let them get away with it and think that they're doing something that is okay. I don't want to make them feel like I endorse or I somehow support what they're doing. So how do I draw a line in the sand? And sometimes those signs are helpful. Well, Romans chapter 2, 1 through 4 tells us this. Therefore you have no excuse for every one of you who passes judgment. So he's talking about my judgment of someone else. And he just talked about all these sins in, in, you want to call it Revelation, Romans 1. He says, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. So by judging others, I am judging myself, for you who judge practice the same things. In other words, we're all sinners. 
And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's no one who escapes God's judgment. And then this wonderful verse I'll put on the screen. Or do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And there are three wonderful words here that I wanted to pick on. Tolerance, patience, and repentance. We hear a lot about tolerance in society today. We should be more tolerant of those whose lifestyle and behavior and values are different than us. And sometimes when tolerance is thrown around like that, what one person means by tolerance is not what another person means. Some people, by throwing around tolerance, it means I've got to accept and embrace what you do. Whereas for others of us, we can tolerate, but it doesn't mean I embrace and support. Here's what God says. Now, God is a tolerant God. So if God's a tolerant God, tolerance to God is not to embrace and support what we do. So if we mean what God means, we should be a tolerant people. So let me show you what the word that Paul used to refer to God's tolerance actually means so that you and I in this room, and you and I who care about these things, and you're going to be polite to listen very quietly and not fall asleep, that I want you to be tolerant like God is. Here is the word for tolerance. Tolerance is a Greek word. It actually has two parts to it, ana and echo. The first part, ana, means up. The second part, echo, means to have or to hold. When God says, I am tolerant, kindness, tolerance, and patience to repentance, when God says tolerance, He is saying, I am going to hold up I am going to hold back punishment. That's tolerance. And if you've got a neighbor and you've got a friend, you've got a co-worker, you've got a classmate who is living a lifestyle that you object to and Scripture teaches us is wrong, you and I are called to be like God. Tolerant. What is tolerant? That I'm going to hold back any form of punishment because who am I to do that? So when God says, Dave, I'm tolerant of your sins, God is not saying, Dave, I support and accept your sinful behavior and it's okay with me because after all, shouldn't we all just get along? God's saying, no, Dave, when you sin, I am a God who is tolerant of your sins in that I'm not going to immediately bring punishment against you because you have sinned. God is constantly being tolerant with us. If you look at the Old Testament story of Noah, when God commissioned Noah to build an ark because in those days it was the most wicked time in the history of the world. God says there is no worse time than now. So I'm going to wipe out everybody on the earth. So Noah, go build yourself an ark because the flood's coming even though we've been in a drought. And here is God's tolerance. For 120 years, Noah builds an ark. 120 years. That's 120 years of Anna Echo. 120 years of holding back punishment. 120 years of God's tolerance in the most wicked period of the history of the world. That's amazing to me. 
That's our God. So God invites us to be like him, tolerant, holding back punishment. The second word that I liked about that passage in Romans 2, 4 is patience. Two words make up this word, macro. We all know that. We have a lot of things that are macro, the macro view of life. And so those things that are large or long and thumos, which is a Greek word for uh, temper or uh, sometimes anger. So God says, I have a long fuse before my temper is expressed. I will wait a long time before I get angry with those who sin. So God says, I will be tolerant, hold back punishment. Secondly, I will take a long time before I lose my cool on you. And this is how God was so gracious. You know, God loves the Jewish people. God loves the nation of Israel. And God established them with a king, King Saul, then King David and King Solomon. And, and they were good days under David and Solomon. And then both of them had their problems, sin problems. And then after Solomon, the nation became divided. But do you realize for 800 years, God withheld any kind of judgment on the wickedness of that nation? God waited 800 years for them to get it right. But they finally did not. And then he dismissed them as a nation. And they came back then a little bit later after that. So God is a very long-suffering, very patient God. And why does he do that? As it says here, God's kindness, tolerance, and patience. What does it do? It leads to repentance. Repentance, as many of you know, is made up of a couple of words. Meta meaning with and noise meaning mind. And it means to be beside the mind, to, to change one's mind, to change one's behavior. God says, I will be tolerant, holding back punishment. I will be long-suffering and not getting angry. Because my hope, my goal, is to get you to change your mind and your ways. That's what God does. So I say, I want to be like God, but I can't do it like God does. And I put this little phrase on the screen here. Judging people for sin belongs to God because God alone balances it with kindness, tolerance, and patience with a goal of repentance. And candidly, when you and I see things that we don't like... Uh, we may not say something, but we may, we may think it in our hearts. We may want to really give somebody a piece of our mind that we can ill afford to lose. And God says, I'm not in the process of doing that. You can't do it as well as I can do it. So I don't need your help in judging others. I don't need some assistant to judge people. I don't want the competition where you're judging them and because you think I'm letting them get away with it and you think, well, how much longer can you allow this to go on and it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse. So God, I've got to do something to step in the gap to judge people, to let them know and punish them and hold a sign and argue and, and get angry and get in people's face and really, really let them know how terrible they are because God, I don't see you doing anything about it. And God says, the reason I'm not doing anything about it is because I'm a tolerant God, I'm a patient God, I'm a kind God, because unlike you, I want to actually see them come to repentance. All you seem to want to do is punish them. And so this is such an important verse before we even get on. I'm not going to be able to spend this much time in every verse. I just want to drive that home because I know I grew up in, a, in an era and I grew up in, sometimes in the history of even Calvary Church, Santa Ana. There's been a little bit too much judgment 
and not quite enough tolerance, patience, and kindness. And I want that. I want that divine balance and just let God do it. God, I'll help you with the kindness, tolerance, and patience. I'd let you deal with the judgment because I can't handle it. I can't balance it as perfectly as you do. So why does God not allow us and not want us to judge other people? As he said in 2, 1 through 3, because we can't do it as well as he can do it. And I just need to rest in that fact. All right, make sense? Still with me? Are you thinking? Are you there? Because this is going to be sort of academic in a way. And uh, I wish I had a really funny, you know, uh, video clip to show you right now, but I don't. (laughs) Who will God judge? There's two kinds of people that God looks at in the world today. You know, there's all kinds of ways that we define people and behavior and values and awards and rewards and things like that. When God looks at mankind, he only sees two categories. He didn't see multiple categories. He didn't see race. He didn't see age. Uh, he didn't see academic background. He doesn't see financial well-being. Th- those are all things that he knows about. But when it comes to his judgment, he just looks at two categories. There's two categories in the world. And the first is represented in this. In verses 5 and 6, it says, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of the wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. The first category of people that God is going to judge are those who have unrepentant hearts because they're stubborn. And again, here's another wonderful little Greek word. I love the, the Greek language because some of the English words we have today come out of the Greek words. And this Greek word for stubborn is sclerotus, and we get the word sclerosis from it. Anybody have arteriosclerosis? <laughs> okay. I'd try. Um, arteriosclerosis is the hardening of the arteries. We have a friend of ours who has scleroderma. Scleroderma is where part of his face has grown hard. The, the skin is hard. It's tough. God first used that word to define the English word stubborn, where the heart becomes hardened. It's like calluses. I have calluses on my hands. And it's funny because I'm not a carpenter. But I've got calluses on my hands. And wherever those calluses are, I could stick a pin in it and I wouldn't feel any pain. And what happens to people is that their heart becomes calloused. Their conscience becomes calloused. Their mind becomes calloused. It becomes sclerosis, stubborn. So that when you try to prick them with conviction, like a pin on a callus, they don't feel anything. It's numb. You've got family members that aren't walking with Jesus, are sinning and they just don't even care, are living in complete disobedience to will of God, and it seems like it just doesn't matter to them. The reason is, is because the heart has become sclerosis. It has become hardened and calloused, and there are no words, there are no things that cause them to feel pain to want to change. We change when we feel pain. When we don't feel pain, we don't change a whole lot. Just a couple of weeks ago, I hit my little pinky finger here on something, and it gashed it, and I couldn't hardly stop it from bleeding. And it's just the tiniest little cut, and yet every time I bump something with it, I suddenly am jolted. 
of all my body, this is the only part that now really hurts. And so I'm very conscious of this little tiny little finger. And when there's pain, it changes behavior. And so now I don't like to shake people's hands, but I'm a gracious and loving guy. And so I, I do that, but my little finger is so sore. So it wants, it wants, it, my finger is making me think twice about certain behaviors that hurt. Spiritually, I don't change unless I feel pain forcing me to do it. God wants to soften a heart so I feel guilt over sin, so I say, Lord, I'm sorry forgive me. But he doesn't keep it hanging over my head. He wants us to change. He wants to bring us to repentance. This kind of a person is very, in verses 8 and 9, it says this, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. This is a fascinating two verses here. Their motive is selfish ambition, which leads to tribulation and distress. And here is a kind of an analogy. I don't play a lot of golf, but whenever I do, I think about sin. There's something, there's some great correlation of golf and sin, and, and it is this. You notice that their selfish ambition results in tribulation and distress. Every time I tee off, off the tee, which is where you tee off, uh, I hit that ball, and it's bound to either go to the right or to the left, even though there's this nice big pasture of green in front. And so it goes, and then it lands behind a tree somewhere, typically. And when it lands behind a tree, then that shot is even harder than the tee-off shot. Because then I'll hit it, and I can't tell you how many times I've hit it behind that tree. And of all the places, there's almost uh, 350 degrees of no trees but then there's like one degree of a tree. And I'll hit it, and I'll hit that tree, and boom, you hear it ricochet, and then you've got to find it somewhere else. And it's even harder to find, and then it goes into a deeper rough, and then it's even harder to hit out of that. And it's just progressively worse because each hit that is bad leads to even a worse hit that is even worse and more bad, or whatever the grammar is on that. Sin is like that. It's like golf. I sin once, say the T, and then I sin and then bad things happen because I'm sort of outside of God's orderly structure of righteousness. And then I land myself in some place. If I get a a ticket, uh, I've got to pay a fine and suddenly life gets worse because I'm paying four or five hundred dollars for running a red light. And then that four or five hundred dollars comes out of something else that I had planned to do, but I couldn't do it. I mean, I get, and then if you don't pay that fine, you, you land maybe in jail. And I've only been there to visit people. And uh, but you see how these consequences of bad behavior lead to even worse results. So it's even harder to get out of the rough because each bad shot leads to harder shots and more distress and as it says more tribulation and distress. Each leads to a more difficult circumstance. Bad decisions lead to bad consequences, which leads to greater distress, which makes it even harder to do the right thing next time. Got it? Does that make sense? I hope so. God says the first category of people that I look at 
in the world today are those who are unrepentant, with stubborn hearts, selfishly motivated, which only lands them in tribulation and distress. And I'm not happy about that. There's a second category of people, and it is this. People with a heart of repentance in verse 7. To those who, by perseverance and doing good, seeking for glory and honor and immortality and eternal life. He says, I love that in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. People with a heart of repentance reflected in their perseverance and just doing good. It doesn't mean, like even the golf analogy, that sometimes bad things don't happen to good people and doing good things. Clearly that happens. But God says that's the second category. I love people who have that repentant heart. And when he says you have a heart of repentance, God assumes that we're sinning. He knows we're all going to sin. For all of sin falling short of glory to God. So it's not like God says, my standard is those who I look at are unrepentant and stubborn and everybody else is perfect and never sins. God says there's two categories of people that I will judge today. Those who sin and never repent. Those who sin and do repent. But you all sin because you're all working off the need to be repentant. And when you repent, then... Things like glory and honor and peace come to you, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. He says, that's what I want. I want glory and honor and peace in your life. That's what I created you to do. As we sang the song, God knows your name. God wove us together in Psalm 139. God created us for these things. He wants us to enjoy life. He wants life to go better for us. He's not out there trying to punish us because He is tolerant patient and kind. And He knows we're going to sin. He knows you and I are going to blow it. We're going to think, we're going to do, we're going to believe, and they're going to be wrong. And they're going to violate God's holiness. And He's going to sit up there in His very tolerant chair, in His very patient way, in His very kind deeds. And you say, Dave, all I'm asking for is repentance. And then I want to give you glory, honor, and peace. Because I love for my children to experience those things. I mean, what parent does not want for their own biological children or adopted children? What parent does not want for their children glory, honor, and peace? You would have to be corrupt to not want that. If God is our Father, He wants that for you and me. So He desires for that. So is God fair then in judging people? Sometimes we think that God is an unfair God, and we, sometimes we think it's not fair that anybody would be judged. My goodness, some people have never heard. How would they ever believe? Well, God is fair. He judges based on the knowledge of their, uh, God and their truth. It says in verse 11, For there is no partiality with God. And here's kind of an interesting verse that you should pack it away, carry it around for a while. For all who sinned, without the law, will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. You know what God is talking about? He grades on the curve. You know, I always like that in school, when you grade on the curve. You know, because if I could do really bad, if there's a whole bunch of people that did worse than me, I feel pretty good. Because they will help the curve. They will help bring me up. If you just drain an objective and go, oh, I'm in trouble. So God says, if you know the law, I'll judge you based upon your knowledge of the law. If you do not know the law, 
I'll judge you based upon your lack of knowledge. So there's, and I don't understand how that's going to play out in, in eternity. All I know is that God says, I'm going to look at your heart. I'm going to look at your motives. I'm going to look at your deeds. And I'm going to judge based upon what you know or do not know. But I'm not going to judge you the way I would judge somebody like me. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you be teachers of God's Word, because those who teach the Word will be judged more strictly. God's going to hold me to a much higher standard than most of us in this room. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but because you're here today, you're hearing things that's going to make God say you're more accountable. So if you want God to go easy on you, you should leave right now. Because... Every time you hear a message like this, it's sort of like God has, okay, you know more. I expect more. That's, anyways, there's, I'm sort of, sort of kidding, but I'm, there's kind of truth in there, isn't there? The more you know, the more God is basing his judgment upon that. And then what sins are most deserving of judgment? And I'm not going to have enough time to go into it. But in chapter 2, uh, verses 17 to 29, is a whole bunch of, Jewish things going on there. One of the reasons Paul wrote Romans is to help sort of the Jewish-Gentile relationship and those things that are happening there. But the things that he's talking about here is circumcision for one thing and the Jews seeing themselves as sort of better than the Gentiles and they were the first chosen and he talks about that a lot. Yeah, you were first chosen, but you're not better than the Gentiles. So he's going after them, for example, in verse 21. You therefore who teach one another, do you teach yourself? Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? He's going after them because, yeah, you're going around saying the right stuff, but you're not living it. You're, you're saying, just because I'm Jewish, I'm better. I, I don't need to prove anything. And then he says, you go out there and you get your circumcision. You think because you got the circumcision, you're so much better than everybody else. He says, I'm not interested in sort of your outward signs and symbols and rituals and regulations. I'm more interested in the circumcision of the heart. I'm more interested in a heart that is humbled and uh, repentant. I'm, I'm weary, God says, of those who are in their pride and their legalism of setting up do's and don'ts to be accepted by God and sort of the hypocrisy of saying one thing but doing something else. God says, I tell you what, if I'm going to pick on any sins, those are the sins I'm going to go after. You know, he just listed a whole bunch of sins in chapter 1 right? Envy, slander, and all that kind of stuff, and homosexuality, and murder. But what sins does he pick on here under his judgment topic? Pride, hypocrisy, and legalism. So God says, those are the ones I'm going to drill down on. And he drills down on them with the Jews and the Gentiles, and he wants us to be very cognitive of that as well. How can I be assured that God will not reject me because of my failures? Because I look at a God like this and I think, boy, he's all about judgment. He's all about perfection. He's all about righteousness. I'm the least righteous person I can think of. I do these things. I think these things. I'm so, I lose my temper. I get so frustrated. Life just doesn't go well and I keep on messing up. How can he ever accept somebody like me? I love this about our God. It says in uh, verse 3, What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? He says he's faithful to everybody, even if we're unfaithful to him. i I got to summarize it for the sake of time. There's so much about that. But he says, look, I'm not going to put you down because you are faithless. 
or you were unfaithful. Your unfaithfulness will not diminish my faithfulness. I will continue to be faithful to you. I will care for you. I will provide for you. I will be the God who remains kind, tolerant, and patient because I want you to repent. I don't want you to be judged. I says, I want to bring you back. I want to bring you back so you change. That's all I'm interested in. So don't get upset if you think that God in His standard of judgment, I'll never measure up. I'll never amount to anything. I can never achieve that. A lot of people never come to faith in Christ because they're fearful of what God may ask them. They're fearful of being submission in submission to God because they're fearful they can't rise to the occasion. So I need to just leave God alone and let Him leave me alone. God says, I invite you in so I can prove to you my faithfulness. So I can prove to you my tolerance and my patience and my kindness. I invite you to know me better so I can prove that's who I am. So we're in the business of helping people be included in God's care. So how can God judge people that are basically good? Because sometimes you think there's so many good people in the world. I go neighbors, we've got friends, they're, they're all good people. How can God judge anyone? And the thing that Romans 3, 6 through 20 talks about, and I'm just summarizing it now, is that we need to view ourselves the way God does. This verse 10 and 11 is pretty absolute. He starts quoting from the Old Testament, and there's a whole host of Old Testament references that he's going through there. But these two phrases caught my attention that summarizes it. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who seeks for God. None. That's pretty absolute. It's not like, you know, most people don't, or 70% don't, or 60%. No, none. I never sought after God. God sought after me. There is none who seeks to do righteous. As God views us, He sees a bunch of sinners. And in seeing a bunch of sinners, He says, you need a Savior. So I'm going to do something about that. Notice how in-depth the sin is. If you go into this passage here, it starts naming off body parts. He talks about, for example, in verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Their tongues, they keep deceiving. Poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Notice the body parts. How thorough God sees sin in you and me. Which makes which makes his kindness and tolerance and patience all the more miraculous. So sins of our minds. He talks about the throat as a grave, tongue is deceiving, lips of poison, mouth of cursing. And we say, well, I don't, I don't do that. If we're saying we never do those things, that my lips never have poison of words against others, of judgment, of slander, of gossip, of undermining, of disobedience, boy, then we don't need to be saved. We all have those times. Our throat is a grave. We have those moments where we express ourselves in ways that are very unchristlike, And we need to come back and say, God, I'm sorry. We also see there's sins in our deeds. He talks about feet that destroy and that create misery. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. When I go down that path, like golf, 
I end up in an area where there is even deeper rough and more obstacles. And God says, I want to keep you on the straight and narrow so you keep on going straight to the place that He calls glory, honor, and peace as He calls us to that. And then finally, there is sin in our motives. Our eyes do not fear God. I have no concern about who God is and God, what God does. And the Sanctity of Life Sunday, it's, uh, we love babies. We love uh, the innocent life of these little um, ones when they're within the mom and after they come out of the mom. And, and yet when King David wrote about his life, when King David wrote about his life inside his mother, this is what David said. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David says, look, I was a sinner before I was born. And we say, well, how is that possible? This precious little innocent baby, it's precious and innocent, isn't it, until it gets to be two? And what's the first word that most babies learn? No. <laughs> Why? Because they're sinners. <laughs> and they need to repent. You get me. But, but we don't need to teach children to rebel, right? Did you ever have to teach your child to lie? They just come naturally by it. Did you ever have to teach your child how to disobey when you are asked them to clean up their room? Did you ever have to teach your child how to procrastinate? <laughs> we don't train them to do those things. They naturally come by them. Why? Because what David said, which isn't true of all of us, I was in sin when I was within Dorothy Joe Mitchell. And all of us have the sin nature. God says, you, you just got to see things the way I see things. And you realize what a wonderful God I am. That I'm reaching down to seek you, to draw you out in kindness, tolerance, and patience. And that's how good our God really is. So how can anyone escape this judgment? Here's a wonderful, wonderful verse in chapter 3. And I put in red my interpretation of that verse and those words just to add flavor, color. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I say I am not that bad, then God says my standard is my glory, my holiness, the sum total of all that I am in perfection. If you say you're not that bad, then you need to be as perfect as God says He is. And anything less than that, I'm a sinner. So if all have sinned and fall short of God's glory because there's nobody as perfect as God is. He stands alone. None of us measures up. And anybody who says that in this room is a liar. And I mean that in the nicest sense of those words. But we can never say that we're as perfect as God is. No one measures up, not even the best person that you can possibly think about in life. We've all fallen short of His perfection. So, being justified. The word justified literally is a legal term that means to be declared righteous. God says, I want to declare Dave Mitchell righteous. That's my desire, because Dave Mitchell is a sinner. He's not as perfect as I am, and so I recognize that. So does he. So I'm going to do something about it. I want to declare him righteous. So as a gift by his grace, he's going to give to me something that I can never earn, never be able to produce, never be able to work hard enough, go into seminary, all that stuff means nothing to God that would never help me achieve to be declared righteous. So grace is God giving me something I don't deserve. It's grace to give to me 
the justification or the declaration of righteousness. How does he do that? Through the redemption. The word redemption is a Greek word that means to pay a ransom. To pay a ransom to God for our sin. And what's the ransom payment? It's Jesus Christ. So that's the fullness of what God says. That's why I can be kind and tolerant and patient. Because I have provided a means to purchase you out of your sin and declare you as righteous and accept you as my family and welcome you into heaven. That's our God. So God alone, God alone can do all that. You and I, we're just the messengers. I can't make somebody say, I want to be justified. I can't make someone say, I need God's grace. I can't make someone say, pay the ransom for me, Jesus. But God can. So we invite people into that kind of arrangement, that relationship. And so the last question I ask is this. Is your faith in Jesus' sacrifice to pay for the penalty of your sin? Is that where your faith rests? And if you know people that you care about and love, you invite them to this truth. Bring them to that verse. Most people recognize I'm not as perfect as God is and they try to keep the Ten Commandments and they go to church and they do communion, the baptism, and they've been through some sort of a, a convocation service and they've done you know, all these kinds of infant baptism. They do all these things that are sort of legalistically based in terms of gaining righteousness. God says you can't gain it, you can't earn it, you can't work your way to it. I've got to do it for you and all of it for you. You don't do 1% and I do 99% or vice versa. I do 100%. So let my ransom payment set you free and declare you righteous and welcome you into my family and into heaven. And if you know people that need that, I invite you to challenge them. Next Sunday, we'll talk about the power of faith of Romans 4 and how that faith secures for us some most powerful things that God could ever do and the depth of the kind of faith that God seeks for you and I to have. But He invites us today to have that faith, as simple as it may be, in the person of Christ, that His ransom is paid for your sins. And I invite you into that. We're going to sing a song, and I just want to read the lyrics to that song before we sing it so it will maybe drive home a little bit deeper. And uh, it goes something like this. I once was lost in darkness night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place, his ransom payment. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. You bore the wrath, Jesus did, reserved for me. And now all I know is grace. That's what we just looked at in Romans chapter 3. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you're a gracious God that wants to work in our lives. And this is sort of a... Uh, boy, hard stuff and hard to stay with it and uh, difficult to plow through. And yet, Father, I pray that something resonates that draws us to know you better. And for those of us who have friends and family and co-workers and classmates that need the ransom payment, 
for sins that they may not even recognize or acknowledge because their heart is stubborn or calloused. God, I pray that they would come to realize that you are a God of kindness, tolerance, and patience, waiting for the change that Jesus can bring in their lives. Help us to be your messengers of that truth. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.